Welcome to Amplify. You're listening to Hawks by Barry O'Halpin, performed by flautist Lena Andonovska and percussionist Matthew Jacobson from the new album Away Alone Alas from Diatribe Records. And it's one of many works that feature at this year's New Music Dublin Festival at the National Concert Hall from 28th of February to the 1st of March. And New Music Dublin is the focus of this episode, Yvonne, as we have an interview with the festival's director, John Harris, this week. Yeah, it was uh, an interesting conversation, wasn't it, Jonathan? And, um, you know, New Music Dublin, since John has taken over, he's really actively sought to reinvent the festival. And, um, you know, the festival, it's, it's essential in the cultural calendar of the island. It's the flagship festival for contemporary music. And it's a kind of an essential showcase for contemporary music and essential for audiences in terms of seeing what's new and exciting and vibrant in new music from Ireland and also what's happening internationally. We work very closely with with the festival in a number of strategic ways. Mm. I suppose the main one is NMDX and that's New Music Dublin Exchange. And that's our international delegate programme, well, national and international delegate programme, which really enables networking to take place in a structured way across the weekend of the festival with different networking events and informal mixer events so that people who are active in new music from right across the island, performers, composers, producers, can talk to people who are from right around the world also working in contemporary music to develop new projects, to co-commission, to co-produce and as the title suggests, to build exchanges in contemporary music between Irish contemporary music and what's happening around the world. We're not going to go through the whole programme because there is really far too much to mention. It's a pretty squash programme, isn't it, Jonathan? Yeah. You know, I mean, if, if you want to eat between concerts, you might have to bring a picnic because it's really packed with concerts and installations. It's going to be a busy, interesting, stimulating weekend, I think. Which is great because there's lots happening. And, and as the old saying goes, there's something for everyone. We're also doing our own event. This podcast, in fact, we're having the first live outing of the podcast which is exciting but also uh, a little bit scary too it is isn't it yeah at four o'clock on sunday afternoon in the ivy room which is the little room adjacent to the coffee shop in the national concert hall we'll record a live amplify and to i suppose get people in the collegial and networking spirit we'll have pre-podcast drinks from three forty-five for anyone that wants to join us and then stay on for the recording pre-podcast ring so that is an offer that very few can turn down I'm sure no doubt we also hope to bring more from the festival across the weekend we'll be there and we have some exciting plans for that which we will let you know about in the coming weeks so on to the interview with John Harris the artistic director of the festival and this interview was recorded just after the festival program was announced We spoke to John about the festival, its role, 
his background as a composer and if this influences his programming and a lot more besides. So here is John Harris. I think it's going into, you know, like slow mode or something. I don't know what, you know. Do you want some more coffee? I'm, not, I'm never going to say no. Right. Welcome to the podcast, John. Thank you so much for having me here. It's great. It's great to be here. So we're chatting on the Tuesday after the launch of this year's program for New Music Dublin 2020. How do you feel at this point now that the plans for the festival are public? Exhausted. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it's funny, isn't it? The festival's going already, oh my word, a lot of the hard work goes in on about the, the two weeks before the thing gets published is when you know you make this a lot of those absolutely final 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 decisions but actually i'm delighted it's come out i'm thrilled with the program i think you know i'm really pleased with how it's turned out it's got the whole range of things that we want in new music dublin large to small difficult to listen to to extremely straightforward to listen to um easily accessible and really quite challenging um right across the range of genres it's got everything that i'm looking for so yeah really really happy with it so tell us about this year's festival. I mean, is there a big idea behind it or are there lots of smaller ideas? The thing about Irish new music is that it is an incredibly broad thing. Um, and it's very difficult to put your finger on one thing or you wouldn't even want to put your finger on one thing and say this is representative of what's going on now. I love the idea of the festival being quite a large tent into which everybody piles in, basically. And a lot of the feedback we got from last year was how much people enjoyed the variety of composers and styles and genres and everything that was going on all at the same time, rubbing up against each other. So all I've done is deliberately done more of that, basically. So there's there are these slightly curious clashes. I mean, I think the most obvious curious clash is in the very, very final concert of all, where we have, you know, Gerald Barry's Viola Concerto and Julia Wolfe's Flower Power, which are probably pretty much at the opposite end of the spectrums as we, at the moment. And yet, actually, that clash is really interesting. I think that when you put things that are not necessarily sitting together together, that's when you get really interesting discussion and debate and um, and actually it really wakens your ears up, really. I find it hard to program to a theme. There are threads through it that you can follow if you want to. There's obviously an Icelandic thing going on. There's a lot about what it means to be a solo artist and then a solo artist or um, in a group of people, what it means to be working by yourself in a group of people what it means to be making things for small audiences, what it means to be making things for large audiences, how social music is, I think is really one of my big questions, full stop, you know, how, how social is music, really. Maybe expand on that a little bit. So I have another hat, which is that I work, in, work and live in Scotland, of course, as most people will know. In my other life over there, I run Red Note Ensemble, which is like the Scottish equivalent of Crash. I've always been incredibly interested, back to the days when I was at the Conservatoire in Glasgow, as to what the dance is between the social situation of music and the music that is made. So my original questions were how much do composers write to their audience, in a sense, but I have kind of moved beyond that, really, because uh, we had a lot of audience research done with Red Note, which was about not who came, but who didn't come, and finding out who didn't come and why they didn't come. We've employed researchers from Edinburgh University and done very in-depth research into it and discovered the reasons why people don't come to contemporary music isn't because of the music itself, whatever that is. It's not because they find it challenging. In fact, most people love the challenge. What they find difficult is the social situation of it, of sitting in a concert hall, of having to obey those social norms, of not knowing who the people who are next to you. That actually the social reasons for music are much, much, much more important than the musical reasons for music, really. And the music is the glue around which people coalesce, really.
I think the thing with New Music Dublin is when you're dealing with new music which has so many different strands and so many different ideas and you don't know what you're going to get when you walk into the concert hall. You may love it, you may hate it. Some people adore that sense of not knowing. A lot of people really find that quite difficult. But what I think is going to have to help with it is the social situation in which you do it. So making it as welcome and accessible and easy as possible for people. I think that really the key for me is to make a situation whereby it's possible to access and enjoy and actually even participate in that exploration, really. But do you think the venue plays a part then in that whole experience? Yeah, it does. And therefore, with the National Concert Hall, is there a slight challenge? Because for many people in, in new music, it's not considered the most social space. I think you can look at it two different ways. You can either look at it and go, blimey, what are we going to do about this? this? It's a massive hall for what could be quite small audiences by comparison to, say, you know, rock concerts or whatever it happens to be. Or you could look at it and say, well, the venue is the destination. This is where we're doing New Music Dublin. It has enormous advantages of the concert hall in that there are a lot of spaces. A lot of spaces are extremely good for new music making. I mean, you can be as loud as you like in a studio and not disturb the neighbours. You can have really open concerts in, say, the John Field Ring where the staircase is. The foyer is a major social point. You can have installations. You have small chamber music rooms like the Kevin Barry Room. All that is great. The main hall... It has does present its challenges in terms of, you know, who is going to fill that hall. You need a stage large enough to take orchestras, but you don't necessarily need the audience size of whatever it is, 1,300 people. That said, there is something magnificent about putting on large-scale music in a large-scale venue, and I think that actually that's something that we have to embrace as new music people. We can't sort of make ourselves marginalised by going into smaller spaces because that just makes us look more and more marginalised. You know, we have to be able to do the big things as well. Bang on a can, Gerald Barry, these are people who, are, who actually can fill those spaces. I'm interested that you say, you know, there are certain names that will fill the main hall mm-hmm. of the National Concert Hall. And it brings us around to this idea about, you know, that new music festivals have changed a lot over the last 15 or 20 years, that they're not about a particular one big name composer or, or a theme. Is it that, you know, the shift is because there there aren't really any big, big names like the Berio or the Boulez or the, the Stockhausen uh, mm. like there used to be. It's really interesting that the sort of unicorns, as you might call them, um, of contemporary music, those unicorns don't necessarily exist in the same sort of a way. You know, we don't have Berio, we don't have Stockhausen anymore. We don't have the structures that prop them up either. I don't know who's read Who Pays the Piper here, but, you know, this is an interesting discussion of why particular composers from particularly Western Europe, were elevated and given enormous amounts of funding and marketing firepower behind their work. Why was their work elevated above everybody else's? There's been a long, long tale of that. This huge focus on a particular way of thinking about new music that existed post the Second World War and probably lasted for maybe 30 or 40 years and then tailed off mainly because the people who were proponents of it began to get old or you know, we began to lose them or because actually the political situation changed. And I think that that is also part of the dance, is how much the social and political and musical are actually quite intimately wrapped up. Now, what I'm not saying is that I think the Stockhausen is, you know, a pile of nonsense, and I would say, you know, actually an awful lot of his work is phenomenal. But we have a situation where actually those people are now passing on, the battle's going to a much wider field of people who sort of have been inspired by these inverted commas, giants, close inverted commas, of contemporary music. They all deserve a moment, they all deserve a listen, they all deserve an outing at some point, you know. So I think... That's one of the other things that's happened is that we just have many more people and many more styles and, and there's no single this is the way anymore. 
I was talking to Kevin Volans about this before Christmas, or, well, he was talking about it that in the past, that countries got behind these composers mm-hmm. and really pushed them out as this being the best, yes. you know, of their culture. And that's all changed now, as we know. We don't have these towering figures because the, the money is not put behind them. It's become more democratic, slightly more inclusive, mm-hmm. I guess. And something like New Music Dublin is a reflection of of that change that's happened over the last 30 years. I would like to think so, because it may be that I think I'm having an interesting and original thought by making this a kind of wide and and inclusive festival. But actually, maybe all that I'm doing is simply responding to political currents in the same way as other previous contemporary festivals did. You know, I don't think the shift is a bad one. I think that actually giving a platform and a voice to newer voices coming through newer composers coming through newer practitioners coming through is incredibly important because that's really where the future will lie we i don't think we can put our hopes of salvation in one composer or two composers or a particular style of composition or all the rest of it so yeah i think it's uh, it's key to keep it as broad as possible As a composer, you mentioned this er- er- earlier and your involvement with Red Note Ensemble. Tell us about your background. Tell us your story. Tell us your story. I mean, I, I'm a bit of a mongrel, I think, and I would happily admit to that. I don't come from a kind of purist background in any way, shape or form in anything. I'm, I'm always been a little bit sort of grit under the fingernails or slightly at the edges of something or at the outside looking in to some degree. I mean, my actual background, I suppose, was I was a, my parents were churchgoers. I learned the organ from about the age of 10 but I was a a church organist and then I uh, ended up being an organ scholar at Oxford University but at the same time I didn't study music I studied material science I've always had these two heads it's partly because at my secondary school which is a very small rural secondary school in Worcestershire where I grew up they they just didn't do music there was no music there was no music teacher and so I couldn't do what was then O-level music so my first degree is actually in material science so I can spot stainless steel at 100 yards very useful. Hence the obsession with, with old classic steel bikes. Well, hence the obsession with old classic steel bikes, exactly. It all makes sense. It now. all makes sense now, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and then I had at the end of university, I had a kind of a sort of a moment where I had to choose. I actually had scholarships. I was, I was due to go to MIT on a Kennedy scholarship. And I also had two organ scholarships and I had to choose between these three things. And I said, I, I know what I'm doing if I go down the academic material science route, but I don't know what happens if I become a musician. So I became a musician. And then kind of basically followed my nose through. End up a, I was assistant organist at St. Giles Cathedral in Edinburgh, which is the kind of state, Scottish state church, really. And then I ended up composing music because my girlfriend and then wife at the time, she uh, was a playwright and she started working at Travis Theatre and they said, oh, we need someone to write some music for us. Do you know anybody? And she said, well, you know, ask John because I was writing a little bit at university. And then gradually I stopped playing the organ and did more composing and took myself off to the what was the Academy of Music in Glasgow, which is now the Conservatoire. Because I have no music qualifications, of course, I turned up at the gates for what was, they said, well, we can't interview for a master's because, you know, we actually 
can't legally put you on the course as you don't know anything. So we'll give you what we call continuing education. And I remember my interview very clearly for that. <laughs> Bearing in mind, I've been writing music for four or five years professionally for theatre shows. And uh, the interviewer said, uh, so John, so which composer do you admire? And I said, well, you know, I like Leonard Bernstein, like Benjamin Britten. He said, do you like anyone who's not dead? And I was like, well, like who? And then he named a bunch of composers and that I'd never heard of. And instantly my thought was, why have I never heard of these people? And that started me off, I think, upon the road that's actually led to Red Note and New Music Dublin and, and actually me getting a proper master's is because my curiosity was deeply piqued as to why I've never heard of these people. <laughs> background and uh, experience and your own personality as a composer, your own musical personality, let's say, influence your approach when you start programming? I have a very simple criteria for music um, as to whether I think it's interesting. When I think about it, it comes down to quite an in-depth idea about what music actually is, but the very simple criteria on the surface are, does it grab my attention and does it hold it? If you think about that, beyond that is, is, does the composer have imagination? And do they have the ability to structure the projects of their imagination? Now, some composers are extremely good technically, but have little imagination. Some composers have, gr have great imagination, but very little technical facility. Really, for me, you need both. So you need somebody who has a, a sonic imagination and then is able to actually develop that into, into a structure that's long that will hold my attention for the duration, ideally the duration of the work. And so really what I'm looking for when I hear people is not so much, do I like it? is actually, you know, there are pieces that I like, but there'll be a much smaller subset of it, is literally, do I think that this has value? And those are the only criteria I have for working out whether I think it has value. Does it grab my attention? Does it hold it? Well, this grabbing your attention and holding your attention, in that context, what's grabbing your attention and holding your attention in new music from Ireland currently? I am hearing a lot of stuff that's here grabbing my attention and holding it. I think the music scene here is incredibly rich. And it's going through all the generations that are here. The thing that I think is really fascinating is that there's, it's not like we have a, a set of older composed, generation composers who are creating work that sounds like they've always made. Actually, they're making fresh new things. I mean, we have Jane O'Leary with the String Quartet Concerto with the RTE. To be totally honest, there's a really fascinating generation of female composers who are creating phenomenal things. I mean, Anne Clear is the obvious example for the person who's making massive international waves, but there are so many more. Every time I come in here and see them, see there's a whole there's another composer who's kind of come on people's radar and they get really excited about this person and they're just kind of flowering up and it's from across these the genres. So you know we have Una Monaghan coming in from the kind of the folk edge and we have the crazy free jazzers. There's literally everything in between those two. You know there's the finely wrought classical works that are extremely detailed written. There's electronica. There's nothing where you kind of go people do more of this than any other thing. There's just a whole kind of incredibly fertile cross section of people. That's what really grabs my attention about them. One of the things that I think is a huge advantage here is that there are a lot of compositional schools. They might be all quite small, um, and they may not all have resident orchestras and all the rest of it. But actually, you know, there are a lot of places where people 
learn to be composers and learn their craft. And they are run by a wide and disparate variety of people. So what you don't get is one voice going, you know, you have to go to so-and-so in order to learn to do this. Now, that may frustrate some professors because they want to be, you know, the, the head honcho. But actually what it means is you get this very diverse set of voices coming through. And I, that, I think, is one of the structural things in Ireland that's really interesting. And I would be very sad if composition departments start to close down or start to lose their funding or all that kind of thing. Because I just think there are a lot of opportunities and ways for people to find their way through into professional life here. And that's what's leading to this very diverse field. think there's enough crossover amongst audiences for all of those different kind of styles and different approaches? I think there's a generally accepted notion that as the audience currently stands, and it is indeed small for new music really when we look at it in absolute terms, that there are tribes. And one of the jobs, I think, really, of something like New Music Dublin is to corral all those tribes in one place and get them to move from one thing to the other. There's this dance between the social situation and the music. You know, music constructs its own tribe quite frequently around it. Now, you know, not may not need, in some senses, explicitly a tribe like punk music or, you know, fans of Slipknot who wear masks or whatever it happens to be. That is a, a definitely a tribal thing. There are tribes, whether they're identifiable from externally or not, but you know you're going to see the same sort of people at particular gigs. The aim of music Dublin is to basically crunch all those together, basically sort of mix them up and make sure that people do actually you know, chat to each other and find other ways forward and maybe go and join another tribe as well as their current one. I have to ask you about the first festival that you programmed in 2018. Sorry to kind of burst the <laughs> bubble there. So as we know, it's been recorded in the annals that and it was cancelled because of the... The Beast from the East, yes. The Beast from the East. How did you feel about that when, when that happened? It was very, very strange few days. I was woken at seven o'clock in the morning by a phone call from um, Olga Barry, who was producer at the time. She said, John, uh, Archie Orchestra has been told not to travel. And I was like, why? And she said, well, look out the window. I said, oh, it's snowing a bit. And she said, uh, yes, it's snowing. I said, and? Because, <laughs> of course, I come from Scotland, right? So, you know, there's things like snowplows and people don't really care too much about the snow. So we went to the concert hall and the place was an absolute panic shutdown. It's like, we're closing the doors at 12, the Beast in the East is coming, every public building in, in Ireland is going to be shut. That's it, game over. So we cancelled the first two days and there's this mad, basic backpedalling of reissuing, you're sending tickets back to people and it's just insane. And you're so focused upon doing that that I didn't really have time to have any kind of emotional response to it. And then we had a, I had a Skype call with the steering committee like two or three days later and we said, well, actually, we're going to have to cancel the whole thing because no one can go anywhere. You know, I met with uh, 
Dave Fennessy and Pete Dowling. So Dave Fennessy, obviously, everyone will know here, Pete Dowling was doing the electronics for his big piece that was remounted in the Defrosted Festival we put together in September. And um, he created this WhatsApp chat called No Music Dublin, which was, I thought it was hilarious. It was basically the three of us, you know, and it was essentially, you know, because the three of us could just about get out where we go to the pub that day. And I got a plane out on Sunday night. I'd had James McMillan stuck in a hotel for three days. Kevin Volans, I think, was down to his very last piece of quiche. And no one could go and get anything. It was just all disaster. I got on the plane and I flew back to Aberdeen, actually, to go and see Jenny. And because Aberdeen is just a totally different place, right? So, you know, snow was six foot high and the whole thing's still running. And, and they said, oh, yeah, it's snowing a bit. And it's interesting that you know, different countries respond to these things in completely different ways. So my expectation was, oh, we'll just carry on, you know. And actually, it was like, no, we're going to shut everything. And that's going to be that. And But I think I'm eternally grateful to the steering committee because they, on that Skype call in the middle of the festival, they're like, okay, this one's over. Let's see what we can put to- back together again. Simon... Taylor said, well, you know, we have the following dates. And there was a question of getting RTE on board to come back in with the following dates for the Defrosted Festival. And we essentially just remounted the festival, I think, in about four weeks. We put the whole thing back together again. It's a really messy business. But we're incredibly grateful we did manage to get it going Defrosted because it shows kind of will and determination and character, I suppose, really, when it comes down to it. And it showed a bit of what we would like to do. It takes months to put a festival together and you unwind the whole thing in a day. It's like playing a film backwards in high speed, basically. As soon as you start doing it, you can't stop doing it because you have to go, right, you know, everybody needs to know this and they need to know it now. It was nuts. about the gender balance uh, approach that you have to programming because you have been quite forthright in uh-huh. your 50-50 yeah. policy yeah. of programming and uh, but, but throughout throughout the festivals that you've, you've yes. programmed. Do you know, I haven't actually counted up this year, which is a terrible thing to do. I haven't actually done the calculations. And the reason being is that because it's a partnership thing, this, I'm very clear with the partners that, you know, I'd like to make sure we have a good solid gender balance of at least 50-50 male-female. I certainly don't think that female composers are underrepresented in, you know, this year. I mean, if you look at the main symphonic concerts, we have uh, Siobhan Cleary and Jane O'Leary, you know, up against Huyi Goodmanson. Now, Huyi is a man from Iceland, but, you know, there's two female composers. And then in the uh, NSO concert, we have um, Julia Wolfe and we have Gerald Barry. If you look across the piece, I think there's fair representation of, of female composers against male composers. If I'm really honest with you, I'm less hung up on it than I was in previous years because I think what I do see is I see a lot of female composers coming through. I'm less hung up on a precise 50-50 thing than I am just making sure that we have a good, solid balance coming through and I don't feel like we're female composers are being underrepresented. It would appall me if, if female composers were underrepresented. And, and as I said before in this podcast, I think that you know, one of the most interesting generations coming through is the female composers who are sort of, you know, 20s, 30s age 20s and 30s in Ireland are doing for me some of the, the most interesting work that I hear internationally so why would I ignore that you know that would be completely crazy it would shock me if I ever felt that anybody said well you know you're a straight white bloke from Scotland who's coming and gone you know well let's just put other straight white blokes on there as we go forward there's a really interesting thing that I would be interested in introducing which is something that we have in Scotland but we don't seem to have in Ireland the same way which is a set of protected characteristics so you know it's gender in Scotland we have uh, multiple deprivations of protected characteristics that needs addressing um, sexuality maternity status is another one disability obviously ethnicity there are 13 in total 
Crazy Scotland has this very interesting process whereby for every regularly funded organisation, so that's kind of core-funded organisations, basically, you have to produce what's called an EDI plan, Equalities, Diversity, Diversity, Inclusivity Plan. And they don't say, right, all 13 characteristics need your attention. They say, choose four or five that you know you can do something with or about. And what we want to see is we want to see very clear plans for increasing the equality, diversity and inclusivity of this protected, particular protected characteristic that you've chosen. Now, different organisations will be better at different things. So in Red's Notes case, I mean, we have um, disability, particularly multiple disability, age, so young and old. So we do, do a lot with dementia, but also with very young kids. Race and ethnicity, areas of high multiple deprivation and gender, of course. And the thing is that you get actual hard targets. So it's like you will do the following things. And you, make, you, you say yourself, this is our plan with respect to this particular characteristic. And you're held to it. I would like to find some way of implementing a similar sort of a thing so that what we see, not just in terms of audiences, but also in terms of commissioning and also in terms of the, the things that you put in at the grassroots to begin to build a sense that actually, yes, you can be a composer. Yes, you can be musically creative. Yes, you can have your work on the National Concert Hall. Yes, you can have it played by, by professional musicians. Yes, you can be heard. I think it's a very long-term proposition, but my ideal would be that actually across the piece, and we would choose our protected characteristics carefully, we would begin to look at how we can increase that. But borne out by the confidence that we know that the music is not the problem. The music is not the problem. The social situation is probably the problem. And actually, we can do something about the social situation. People will make the music they want to make. I wouldn't say moving beyond gender because that would be incorporated within it, but there are many other social issues, underrepresentation issues that I think we can really very positively do something about as a festival and we can you know flag that up and we can headline that and we can say this is a priority for us now at the moment we're just finding our feet as a new organization so that's not on the first board meetings agenda but it will become that with any luck you know that's the aim Festival gives such a focus for us, John, to to enable us to invite these international presenters, international broadcasters Mm -hmm. to engage with contemporary music from Ireland and then, you know, hopefully program it in their festivals or, uh, you know, we we had uh, Austrian Radio last year, of course, we did two programmes on the festival. Kate Mollison came from BBC Radio 3. This year we have two people from Swedish Radio coming to uh, do two or three programmes on the festival. So it's it's really been a hugely uh, beneficial programme for, Absolutely. for everyone. It's possible to make a festival like this and for it to be quite insular. My sense is actually that it's entirely the opposite, that actually it's very, very international, very, very outward facing. An awful lot of people are piling in from abroad, going, hey, hang on a second, here's something that we want to come and listen to. I was somewhat stunned by the listenership figures from the European Broadcasting Union for the broadcast from RT last year. I don't think people necessarily realise you know, that millions of people will have heard that music across Europe and the representation of Irish work abroad is enormous through simple kind of well, simple inverted commas broadcasting. 
part of this is also driven by me as a composer, knowing what it means, what it takes to be a composer and to earn a living as a composer. I mean, you know, I don't, of course, because I run other stuff as well, but I still do make you know, some money from commissions. But in order to be a composer, to make a living, you have to be international. That is literally, it is just not possible to do it all within one country. And NMDX and New Music Dublin together, I wouldn't say they make that possible, but they give people the sense that actually, you know, there's a big world out there. And this big world may well want your stuff. And that, I think, is really, really, really key. And also it gives people the confidence to stand on their own two feet. Part of the deliberations around it are to make sure there's the right mix of international work alongside Irish work so that people see the Irish work alongside the international work and go, hang on a second, I'm as good as that. And it's not just the Irish people who are within the hall going saying that, it's the international delegates and people coming from abroad going, oh, hang on a second, that's just as good as that. Why are we not programming that? That's why it's really important to put the two alongside each other really i think is to make sure that everybody understands that the irish work is on the same footing as all the other international work that is really 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 key and that means that it then becomes possible or at least more possible to make a living as a composer in the international situation we spoke a lot about you know what a festival is what a new music festival is or you have spoken a lot about it projecting ahead and and how f- I guess, how festivals have changed over the last 15, 20 years where there used to be an emphasis on a major figure. What do you think is the future of a new music festival such as New Music Dublin in a world where increasingly boundaries between art forms are becoming blurred, you know, with more emphasis on cross-disciplinary work and people who are looking for I guess, new experiences, the whole sort of Netflix generation, the competition on, online. Where, you know, where do you see all that stuff heading in terms of a dedicated new music festival? Is there one question in the whole <laughs> 15? I don't know. Take your choice as to what you want to answer. It's what really you interesting say. looking at the various cross currents. So, gosh. I mean, will a new music festival exist in 30 years time oh i would be astonishingly surprised if not back in the 80s the death of live music was predicted at least 40 times it was all going to be replaced by recordings and synthesizers and you know we were all going to be wearing headsets my personal feeling i think goes back to exactly what we're talking about at the start of the podcast which is the social element um people do not like being isolated there's a very very important function which is people gathering around music i mean any kind of festival is a is a is a is a mix between the practical and the idealistic. So I have these idealistic ideas about creating social structures and social situations around music, but of course, you know, we all have buildings and we have money and we have players and we have all the rest of it. There is a simple thing that's going to be happening with New Music Dublin, which is, as we all know, the concert hall will be closing for redevelopment and somehow we have to either find a new home or we disperse, or I don't quite know exactly what we do about that. That's still being thought through. I would love to retain the thing that I think is really, really important for New Music Dublin is that social element that everybody comes together for this thing. I think we have what many people seek as a terrible disadvantage, which is that nobody knows what on earth the music is going to be like and it's all entirely new and it could be a disaster or it could be wonderful and who knows. We can turn that from being a serious challenge into actually being an asset because actually what you then do is you just in, you incorporate new voices and you make sure that they are heard and that they are performed and that they're given the best possible stage they can be so that actually they can find their own social situation. The, thing, the question is going to be providing the social situation for those voices to be heard in the best possible way and for people to be able to gather around that music and make sure that they get the chance to hear it and to discover it. And I think that's actually what new music can do. That other 
more traditional festival forms of music, you know, Beethoven cycles, Bruckner cycles, they're going to struggle with that because they're going to have to find entirely new social situations. And the trouble is you've got an orchestra on stage and you've got an audience in the stalls and actually what else can you do? Uh, for us, I think we can. that can be an asset for a new music festival is to be able to incorporate all these new voices coming through. But New Music Dublin, under my, I hesitate to use the word leadership, under my whatever purview, is very much an Irish-focused festival. So if this stuff is bubbling up in Ireland, then I would like to hear it and I would like to find it and I'd like to present the work from Ireland to the world and then bring in the best of what we can find from elsewhere to sit alongside it to provide a comparison. Yeah, I reckon there probably will be festivals as long as the money's there. And as long as climate change doesn't... Well, that's the other thing. Affect things. No fly. That is a big deal. Juliet Fraser has already said, you know, she's not flying to this festival. She's coming by train and boat. And it's the Sound Festival in, in Aberdeen. Uh, their, their 2021 festival is a no-fly festival. So nobody's flying to get there. So we're having to think about whole new ways of doing all of that. And I think we will get a new localism some degree. I suspect it may completely change the way that people are paid. We may not be able to pay by the hour. You know, if we're going to go to America, whatever, that's going to take us a week just to get there, right? So you're looking at seven to ten times more expense. That, if you pay by the day, that's just not tenable. So we're going to have to think about that, I think, really very hard. And the transportation and getting people in and out is going to be really quite a thing going forward. As well as freak weather occurrences. Are you talking about snow here? Again, I just, just have to just bring it back it out to snow. <laughs> <laughs> actually, I noticed that um, Crash's Daniel Bjornsson premiere is actually all about snow. You see, it's obviously he's inspired something there, I'd say. The fact he goes from Iceland is neither here nor there. <laughs> they can deal with snow. <laughs> they can deal with snow. Exactly. John Harris, thank you very, very much. You're very welcome. I hope some of that makes sense. Music by Siobhan Cleary, an excerpt from her solo piano work, Lida and the Swan, performed by Trace Fahey and taken from CMC's most recent promotional album, New Music, New Ireland 3 from 2018. And it ends that interview with John Harris, Festival Director of New Music Dublin. And Siobhan Cleary's orchestral work, Hum, features in the festival on the concert on the 29th of February, alongside a new work by Jane O'Leary. For a full list of the recordings used in the podcast, do please check out the show notes for this episode on cmc.ie forward slash amplify. And for all the details of the festival, check out newmusicdublin.ie or the National Concert Hall's website at nch.ie. So that's all from us for this week. And as we're seven episodes in, if you haven't already, do take a listen back to some of the previous episodes and let us know what you think. Email us at amplify at cmc.ie or reach us on social media. 
We also want to hear from you about what you would like us to cover. So if you have any ideas or thoughts on this, do please get in touch. Join us in two weeks for the next episode. Until then, bye for now. This is your prize, right? I've got a Mozart ball. A Mozart Kugel, and all the way from Vienna, I, I hope. I hope it's an original. This is from Prague. That's not as good. Ah, oh, well. <laughs> Just a sudden thought, maybe you should sell handleballs from here. Handleballs. Yeah. Handleballs, yeah. Handleballs. That'd be really good. <laughs> yeah. Is there anything else, Any anything you'd like to add before no, uh, we're good. We, we, we take a vote on whether you've earned the Mozart chocolate? <laughs> Yeah. Do you want me to leave the room whilst you make the room? <laughs> <laughs> no, we're very open. Yeah,